We continue this morning with our series on the book of Esther. And here in Esther chapter 3, the story takes a very dark and an ominous turn. The empire, which we've seen to this point, is indulgent. It's rich, opulent. It's even comical, the empire. It's excessive to the point of parody. But now the empire becomes dangerous and threatening. And so we're going to make three points. They're there on the back, inside page of your bulletin. The refusal, the rage, and the royal decree. The refusal, the rage, and the royal decree. So first, first the refusal. So this is Esther chapter 3. And the chapter opens with the words, After these events... Meaning, after what we saw at the end of chapter 2, where Mordecai had foiled an assassination plot against the king. He told the new queen Esther about it, and she told the king. And she explicitly gave credit to Mordecai for foiling the plot. So when we read in the next sentence, after these things... King Xerxes honored, we expect it to be Mordecai's name we hear. But it is not. He honors one Haman, now introduced into the story for the first time. Mordecai goes unrewarded. He suffers the slight, right, and the injustice of being forgotten, being ignored for his work. Many of you, I am sure, have experienced this. Being passed over, being ignored while someone else is promoted, someone else a little more ambitious, a political animal, perhaps without principle, except for the principle of advancement. Life in general, and especially life in the empire, is unfair. It is irrational. This is one of the reasons trying to... Interpret providence will drive you crazy. Frequently, very frequently, people get what they don't deserve and they don't get what they do deserve. And so we have this odd occurrence at the beginning of the text. Do you realize that up until this point, no fewer than 18, 18 officials and advisors to the king have been mentioned? The seven eunuchs, the seven legal guys, and a bunch of other guys. Eighteen have been mentioned. And then out of nowhere comes this guy, Haman, prime minister, vice president, second in command, the king's right-hand man. He is, the text says, notice, he is elevated. By the way, this is part of the long Uh, irony, the long irony game that the book of Esther plays. The text says he is elevated and given a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. And then he is going to be elevated in a much different way, much later. He likes to be elevated. He's going to be elevated. And so There's this great centralization of power. you got this collection of bureaucrats, 18 of them named. 
And the king seems to be, you know, pulled to and fro by them all. So he figures, you know what? It's easier to control one guy. And I've just had an assassination threat. And so in the wake of this assassination threat, I have to clean up my staff. I'm no longer going to have 18 or a couple dozen advisors. I'm going to have one guy. And he's going to be in charge of everything. I'll control that guy. I'm going to pick that guy. And so Haman gets this promotion. And we're given this very critical piece of information, really important about the book. Haman is the son of Hamadatha and Agagite. Now, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. This is going to stress our Old Testament history. He was the king of the Amalekites at the time of Saul. And the Amalekites were a people who attacked Israel when they were in the wilderness after the Exodus. And God promised Moses that he would erase the memory of the Amalekites. That Israel would war against them from generation to generation. Later when Saul comes to power, you can read about this in 1 Samuel. Saul comes to power, Samuel commands him to destroy the Amalekites. And you might remember what Saul does. The Amalekite king was Agag and Saul spared the king in disobedience to the Lord. And because of this, Saul was abandoned and rejected as king. This is hundreds of years before our text. Some 600, 700 years earlier. And that long, bitter tribal warfare between Israel and Amalek is what's going on here. It's evoked when we're told Haman is an Agagite, a descendant of King Agag and Amalekite. Now, it's important to remember, we saw this last week in Mordecai's genealogy. Mordecai is from the house of Saul. And so the conflict between Saul and Agag, between Israel and the Amalekites, is being revived here between Mordecai and Haman. It's very important what the writer here might tell you just by alluding to a genealogical point. All the royal officials were told in the text, all the royal officials knelt and paid honor to Haman because the text says the king had commanded it. Apparently they needed a law even for that. So there's a decree for that. But Mordecai, in this act of civil disobedience, refuses to kneel or pay honor. And the narrator, as usual, gives us no comment as to why. He expects you to pick it up from the fact that Haman is an Agagite. You know, because this is not... If you ask yourself, why does Mordecai not bow here? This is not an idolatry or a worship issue. Jews can and Jews do bow down to rulers, even pagan rulers and others in Scripture on numerous occasions. This this act of courtesy, if you will, to, uh, to Haman is a lot like bowing your head or standing when someone enters a room. It's a lot like the, uh, the English prime minister kissing the hand of the queen. It's an act of courtesy or court protocol. It's a public honor, but it is not worship. 
Mordecai would have bowed to the king, to Xerxes, or he wouldn't be an official in the Persian court. You can bet that, you're, you know, you can bet that that's true. So the issue is almost surely the fact that Haman is an Agagite, and Mordecai is from the house of Saul, and so he views Haman as a mortal enemy and an enemy of the people of God. So he refuses to bow. Now, this refusal was not a one-time thing. If you read the text carefully, you'll see the other officials, the co-workers of Mordecai, day after day, ask him about what he's doing. They ask him about his actions because he refused to comply. Apparently, Haman doesn't even notice. So you should sort of picture a situation like this. You have the palace where the king dwells and does business, and attached to it, and we know this because of archaeological digs, in front of it is a big bureaucratic building. And in there, all the king's officials, all of his legal guys, etc., they all work in there. And Mordecai works in there. There may be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people working in this building in the front end of the palace. And so Haman comes through the front, and he walks in to get back to the palace, and the people stand up, or they show some act of courtesy to him. And Mordecai's back in his cubicle, right? He doesn't look up from his laptop. He just stays seated. But that's what's happening. So Haman doesn't notice it, right? He doesn't notice it. And Mordecai's co-workers are like, what are you doing? You know, day after day you're doing this. Haman comes through, we all stand up, and you're just sitting down. And then it's interesting, right? The text tells you, you know, they wanted to see. They eventually, his colleagues, they're not hostile to Mordecai at first. But eventually they go and tell Haman. Because they want to see if this behavior is going to be tolerated. And the text tells us that Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Now, if you're reading along and you come to that, you should be thinking, what? Esther can't tell anyone she's a Jew? She has to be kidnapped and basically coerced into rape with the king and quiet. And you tell her, hey, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. And here you're telling your co-workers you're a Jew? Leave that aside for now. But you should think that. So again, Mordecai's not thinking, I'm a Jew. He's not telling his co-workers I'm a Jew and I bow down to God alone. That is not what he's saying. It means I'm a Jew and I won't honor this Amalekite even with a kind of act of public courtesy. So the empire, the Persian empire is known to be generally tolerant, multicultural to the various ethnic and religious groups under the umbrella. Now now it's going to be put to a new kind of test. And notice also Mordecai has chosen tactically Submission, he's submitted to the regime, he's conformed to the regime, he's even actively supported and protected the regime because he foiled the assassination plot. He has chosen conformity or submission to this point. He felt no need to draw the line when his adopted daughter was co-opted into marriage with the pagan king. Right? He insisted that she hide her Jewishness to get along. So now he chooses a wholly different tactic of resistance. He reveals and exposes his Jewishness, and he actively opposes the regime in what is a dangerous, public, provocative act of disobedience. And one can, I think, 
question the wisdom of this action. I mean, after all, it provokes an attempted holocaust. And all of Mordecai's and Esther's later actions in the book are simply undoing the fruit of this one action. So Haman is an Agagite, and maybe Mordecai knows him. Maybe he knows his monstrous character, which is soon to be revealed. Still, still though, it's far from clear that Jews, especially in exile, could not show even civil honor to Amalekites. I mean, they show honor to the pagan king. If you can bow down, Mordecai, to the king who burned your city and destroyed your temple, and whose army raped and plundered and pillaged and, and, and took you captive into exile, you can't show a simple act of civil kindness to this Amalekite? It seems like an odd place to draw the line to me. You're going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, the previous generations of Jews? This generation is going to bow down to Xerxes, but not his right-hand man. Nevertheless, that's the call Mordecai makes. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying he's open to criticism at this point. This is a grand reversal of his previous strategy. Previous to this, he's flying under the radar. He's trying to survive. He's trying to accumulate a little power, a little influence. Now he changes course radically. So that's the refusal. We'll come back to this, Lord willing, at the end. The second point is the rage, right? Haman sees it. And he's enraged. This is the mode of the empire. Vashti refuses to come. The king's enraged. And as the king's underlings have, you know, they've learned that rage is the mode of responding to personal slights in the palace court. In both cases, right, minor public issue is turned into an empire-wide matter of law. And so we see this over and over and over again. Disproportion, overreaction, excess, and then grand legal gestures in the face of really petty offenses. This is the way of the total state. You've got to be proactive. That's what they teach leaders. You've got to be proactive. You've got to stamp this stuff out. It seems to me we could use a good leadership book that says it speaks of the value of underreacting. That's what the empire could use, right? Underactive leadership. So in the first case, Vashti's case, the law, remember the law? Husbands rule their own households. That was comic. But here the decree is tragic. Haman learns Mordecai's a Jew. He learns that. And then this ancient hatred of the people of God. What we now call anti-Semitism. It completely overrides the Persian charity toward various ethnic peoples. Haman scorns, the text said, he scorns the idea. as As if it's beneath his dignity to just have Mordecai executed, he looks for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now remember why this matters in the big picture. That means all the Jews who went back to Palestine. And that means the Davidic line. 
And that means the ancestors of Jesus are also in the crosshairs of this decree. The decree is issued in Persia, but the salvation of the world hangs on the outcome of the decree. So, the text tells us, in the twelfth year, this is verse 7, that's five years after Esther's become king. In the first month, that's the month of Nisan, Haman gets some of these professional sorcerers, diviners, and they cast lots in Haman's presence, and they're trying to select the day and the month for the massacre of the Jews. Imagine that, getting a collection of these professional diviners to try and figure out what's the best day for mass slaughter. And the lot is called Pur, the Pur. In plural, it's Purim or Purim. Right? This is where the Feast of Purim comes, which is celebrated next month, derived from the events of this book. Now, we're not told exactly how this lot casting thing works, but somehow they cast them and they cast them again and again and again. And they figure out, okay, the lot falls to the 12th month, and later we're told the 13th day. Now, this is a full 11 months away, which, of course, will allow time, right, for the deliverance of the Jews to be conceived and executed. So the lot is cast. Now Haman has to go in and persuade Xerxes. Think of how confident he must have been. He actually cast the lot first. You would think he would have gone into the king and got permission, got his approval, and then cast lots for the day. No, he cast lots for the day. He's got the day picked out. And he goes into the king. And this speech from Haman to Xerxes is a classic piece of dehumanizing, ethnic cleansing propaganda. It's a horrifically evil speech. He begins, there is a certain people. Notice the name of the people is suppressed. He never tells Xerxes these are Jews. Never tells them. This way the king can put no faces to the people. Just there is a certain people, faces like Mordecai the Jew. And eventually, though he doesn't know it, faces like Esther his queen. Keep the people anonymous. It depersonalizes them. It turns them into abstractions, and it allows the king's imagination to throw up monsters. There is a certain people, he says, dispersed through all the provinces, dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And they're rootless. You know, it's amazing. This is still in the world. You know how many Jews are in the world? Something like 15, 18, 20 million. 0.2% of the world is Jewish. And yet people are still terrified of them. Hunting them. Propagating tropes to make them enemies of the state. Right? They're, they're ubiquitous, and they're spread throughout the people. This stirs up a certain paranoia that actually flies in the face of Jewish weakness and gives them, ironically, a mysterious kind of power. You know, one scholar says the Jews are like nails in the mouth of a crocodile, meaning they look outgunned 
and swallowed up and overmatched, but they can't be assimilated, right? You can't swallow them. You can't destroy them. And when you clamp down on them, they're going to rip the insides of you up. They're like nails in the mouth of a crocodile. There's a certain paranoia that's created about them in spite of the fact that they are, in fact, no threat at all. They keep themselves separate, he goes on. This is a half-truth. Mordecai lives in the capital and works with all the Persians. Anti-Semitic writers have always seen Jewish separation as meaning they're unassimilated, they're antisocial, they're the haters of humanity, which is the same charges that were leveled against the early Christian church. Their customs, he says, are different from those of other people. This is still the speech to the king. Now, there's some truth to this, but it's far from the whole story, right? They participate in Persian life, and besides... The customs of every group of people is different from the customs of other groups of people. They do not obey the king's laws, he says. I mean, this is just an outright lie. What's happened is that there's one Jew who's disobeyed one court protocol law. That's it. One Jew has disobeyed one ceremonial ritual law about the court. And the report to the king is, this whole people doesn't keep your laws. This is how propaganda works. And then he goes on and says, it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate or leave them alone. This is an absurd claim without any evidence. Of course, this is about Haman's best interest and not the king's at all. And so he continues, he says to the king, if it pleases the king, he proposes this decree to destroy the Jews, who he doesn't name. He doesn't even wait for the king to deliberate. You know what he does next? He offers a bribe. 10,000 talents of silver. Now this, by the way, is an absurd and probably satirical amount of money. It would be, scholars estimate, 65% of the tax revenue of the empire for a whole year. So I don't know. I don't know if there are any people in the world that have 65% of the American GDP hanging around in their pockets so that they could offer a bribe of that amount. It's a preposterously inflated number. There's no indication as to how Haman could have or get that much money. It's in the text to show you how earnest he is about the genocide. And so what does the king do? Notice how vague this whole speech is. What does the king do? He takes his signet ring, he gives it to Haman, and the text reminds you right here, when he hands the ring to Haman, the text tells you again, in case you missed it, Haman is an Agagite, an enemy of the Jews. And so, you would think a thorough leader here would ask a question like this. Who are these people? How many of them are there? Where are they spread throughout my empire? Why are they a threat? No. not Without so much as a follow-up question or a twinge of conscience, Xerxes tells Haman, keep the money and do with the people as you want. It's not clear, actually, that he's 
not accepting the money. This may be an ancient Near East way of negotiating. It's, it's not clear that he's really not telling Haman, we'll take the money. So, again, sometimes in life your fate is decided by someone who doesn't even care about the basic facts of the case. Not even interested in asking a follow-up question. This is delegation to the point of lunacy. And later we'll see, this is amazing. Later on, you're going to see this. The king actually forgets that this whole thing was something he authorized. Right? When Esther goes in to talk to him later on, he's like, tell me who did this. So that's, that's the rage. He's busy. He's distracted. So finally, the edict. Right? They get the secretaries. They promulgate the edict. The, the text gives you this impression by the words it uses that it, of speed and of these falling dominoes and that Haman is on the right side of history. And the decree, the actual text of the decree, which it's not clear the king ever saw or cares about, but the, de- the decree is more vicious than what was said to the king. Right? This is how crafty political people work. He soft pedals it to the king. And then when he actually issues the decree, he says the decree is to destroy and to kill and to annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children. It's important to see the extent of this hatred. That, you know, the rabbis said that Haman was worse than the Egyptian pharaoh. And there's this famous little bit where a rabbi puts these words into Haman's mouth. Haman says this, Pharaoh was a fool for saying, every son that is born to you will be cast in the river. Did he not know that the daughters would marry and have children? I will not make such a mistake, but will decree to annihilate and to kill and destroy all, young and old, women and children. He's worse than the Egyptian Pharaoh. And then you learn at the end of verse 13, there's one more thing in the decree. Not only are we going to kill them, we're going to plunder their goods. So if you're not a hateful anti-Semite, please join us for the plunder. You can enhance your portfolio. And the deed itself is 11 months away. And the decree is issued as a law so that the whole murdering multitude can get ready. Be ready for the day. The king and Haman, they sit down. They callously eat and drink. The city's bewildered because it's gotten the edicts. You know, that's a little tiny bit of a good sign, right, that the city's bewildered. It means not everyone, in fact, probably not the vast majority of people are anti-Semites. The city's confused by the decree. So I'm going to close with a couple things to remember about each of the three points we've made tonight, tonight, today. Um, So first is this refusal. I want to talk a little bit about Mordecai's refusal. Um, It's important to see, and we've said this already and we'll say it again, but it's important to see there's no one-size-fits-all set of tactics for life in general, and especially for the rough-and-tumble world of politics that Mordecai is in. He has changed already in the first chapters, as I mentioned, from quiet submission, from conformity, from active support of the regime to now open resistance. We're only in the third chapter. He's picked up all those tactics. And by the way, this is important to see, he is arguably open to criticism at every point. I think that's part of why the narrator is silent. 
So one of the things the book of Esther is trying to teach us is that wisdom and its practical application of prudence require great attention to the time, to the context, to the people, to the constellation of things that we're dealing with or making a decision about. And so that means ethics are, contrary to what you might have heard, ethics are situational. That doesn't mean we're relativists, because God and his word are part of the situation. But there's a real sense in which Christians can endorse situation ethics, right, without being relativists. It just means the situation matters profoundly. Right? Neither Daniel nor Joseph, none of these people read or interpret their political situation the way Mordecai and Esther read and interpret their own times. It's not to say, of course, that there aren't times when open refusal is called for. There are. There are definitely times when refusal is called for. But what is called for mostly in life is wisdom and prudence that takes account of the situation carefully. Right? To insist there's always a clear right and wrong answer in a broken world dominated by empire is a failure of maturity. I mean, who's going to list all the right things Mordecai should have done? Apparently not the divinely inspired narrator who chooses rather not to comment. And so doing this, just like living, like doing this well is exquisitely difficult. It's the work of discernment across a lifetime. And that's relevant to you because you are resistors in an age of empire. And note this as well about these kinds of decisions. History, like our narrator, does not tell us if the choices we made are indeed good and right choices. But you don't get anything written in the sky after you made a tactical choice, do you? You can't go by some warm, interior, fuzzy feeling. You you can't even go by the outcome. You know what the outcome of Isaiah's ministry was? Being sawed in half and having absolutely nobody that he prophesied to listen to him for 40 years. You can't say, well, it worked out this way, so it must be God. I mean, how can a religion that has the Son of God broken and crucified on a cross think like that? Well, things worked out. They don't work out for the prophets. You don't know. The the, the narrator here is sort of like God and history. He remains silent. To live is to live with ambiguity. All your tactics, all your political choices, they're also justified by faith alone. And justification by faith alone is what allows a person to live with a clear conscience in a world where tactical choices are really hard. Secondly, the rage. The text reminds us, we saw it in the gospel lesson, right, that there's this ancient enduring hatred against the people of God in the world. Jesus told us it would be there. We shouldn't be surprised about it. We should expect it to endure. 
But I want you to notice this. And this is something they forget in the lot casting rage. Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision. So the rage of the nations is overruled by the Lord of the lots. We saw this in the New Testament lesson, right? Herod and Pontius Pilate met together to conspire against Jesus, and the text says to do whatever your power and your will determined beforehand should be done. We're not afraid of this rage because the wrath of men will praise God. We're not afraid of the lot casting because God rules the lots. You know what else is hinted at in this overruling of the lots? The lot falls, right? In the decree itself, we see this. It's actually issued the day before Passover, the 13th day of Nisan. The decree to kill the Jews is issued as the Jews get ready to celebrate the deliverance from Pharaoh that Haman is trying to undo. So there's already in the text this notion that the God of the Exodus will save his people. Under the hand of God, the nations rage in vain, Psalm 2 tells us, because God has established his king in Zion. Christ, ironically, a crucified Jew as Lord. And finally, I want us to say a word about the decree. The empire is... It's important to see a parody of God, the universal judge. And the empire issues this decree. But here I want to make a different point. I think it's important to see that there's a decree against us that is more dreadful than this terrible decree. It's the decree of God's just wrath against the fallen race. Paul says that In Christ, the decree which is written against you, which was hostile to you, has been taken away. The decree has been born in the killing of Christ the Jew, the Passover lamb, the Jew saved from the line of Haman, the Amalekite. We don't fear this decree because there's a much more dreadful decree that we should fear, and that decree against you has been removed. So when the empire issues decrees like this, they're just splashing around in the shallow end of the pool. That's why Jesus says to us, do not fear those who can kill the body and afterwards can't do anything else. Fear him who, after he kills the body, can cast into hell. There's no decrees against you which should terrify you. That decree being born. And that's what happens after the decree is born. Christ the King, through his empire, through his holy Catholic Church, publishes abroad in every script, in every tongue, in every language, in all the provinces of the world, the gospel of peace. The decree of judgment is overturned. The promulgation of the decree is now the promulgation of the gospel of peace. And so we fear no decrees, because we've in Jesus faced the worst decree. And we now announce the grandest decree, the good news 
from the Jews and to them first and then to the whole world. You know, there was a a fragile, empire-threatened community of Christians at the beginning of the Christian era, and they prayed in our New Testament lesson words we should take up on our own lips. They said, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And I might add, with great wisdom and tact and courage. Amen. Amen.